0: At Matthew 25 verse 40. But let's read the verses just immediately preceding that. But when the Son of Man, that's a title for the Lord Jesus, and he's talking about himself, there we saw that in Daniel 7 last week where you see a person in heaven presented to God the Father called the Son of Man just before the Son of Man conquers the earth and human history on God's terms. So uh, Son of Man is an exalted title for Christ as the Messiah, emphasizes his exalted deity and his humanity. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory at the second advent, the same context as Daniel 7, actually, he will sit on his glorious throne. Hold your place. Go back to chapter 24. Matthew 24 and 25 is like the book of Revelation in two chapters. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's all about the uh, tribulation period and the second advent. Look what the Lord Jesus says about that in chapter 24, verse 29 through 31. Talking about the end times and the end of the end times. Immediately after the tribulation, the seven-year period between the rapture and the second advent of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, there will be so much ash and mess in the atmosphere, probably because of multiple nuclear exchanges, and the stars Aster means anything bright in the sky, talking about meteors, or in this case it may be space wreckage, weapons falling from the sky into earth. The bright shining things, you could translate the stars, the bright shining things will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I always like to say, when you think of an earthquake, you think of a slide slide, Uh, kind of a, uh, what do I I want, a plate sliding on the surface of the earth, you know, and and a a location moving. But as I read Revelation and uh, other passages like Matthew 24 about the events just before second advent, it seems to describe to me, Joe, the whole planet shaking. So if you and I are on a platform uh, and it's shaking, as we look from that shaking platform, everything's going to look like it's shaking. So when it says the whole sky's shaking, that's the way it looks, I think the whole earth's gonna kinda convulse just before the second advent. The powers of the heavens will be shaken as you look up from a human point of view on a pulsating earth. And then, after all of that cosmic dishevel, the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky, the second advent of Christ. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the son of man coming in the clouds of the sky with glory and great power and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and gather them together the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other so you've got second advent a gathering and an accountability of those who survived the tribulation go back to chapter 25 verse 31 let's read it again matthew 25 verse 31 but when the son of man comes in his glory at the end of the tribulation we just read about it in chapter 24 and all his angels with him Then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. Sounds familiar. That's what he just said in chapter 24. And he will separate them from one another. That is, the people alive on the earth and the physical bodies at the second advent of Christ will fit into one of two categories, believers or unbelievers, sheep or goat. And he will separate the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, shortly after the second advent on earth, will say to those on his right, Come you, who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, or because, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry walking around during the tribulation? When did we feed you physically in your glorified body walking around the tribulation? They didn't, but he's, he's asking, they're asking Jesus that. Or thirsty and give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When were you naked and we clothed you? When did you, when would you see, when did we see you sick? Or in prison and come to you. And the king will answer. And this is the verse we want to focus on, verse 40. Here's our verse. And the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, establishing his millennial kingdom just after the second advent, will answer that group of people in that setting and say, Truly, I say to you, that's plural, that's all y'all. He's talking to believers who've survived the tribulation in their physical bodies. Truly, I say to you, To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, even the least of these, you did it to me. Tribulation martyrs, tribulation persecuted Christians are going to have one set of friends in the tribulation, other Christians who are one step ahead of the Antichrist. So we're going to look at this passage today because it's... It's used a lot by politicians on both sides of the aisle. Without trying to, I've heard a lot of politicians recently in the, in the run-up for the Democratic uh, debates and the primaries, and even some of the uh, Joe Walsh and Bill Weld who are threatening to try to get the Republican primary. They cite this portion of Matthew twenty-five forty, unto the least of these. And they use that as a label to try to justify showing their favored social group some kind of Governmental, yes. That's not what it's talking about. We're going to look at that today, even though we're going to um, keep it in its context. We're going to stress that. But let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word and the Spirit that inspired it will illuminate. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, modern, current politicians—Democrat, Independent, and Republican—who use this reference to the least of these way out of context today. So with that in mind, since we're going to be talking about politicians and some preachers that do that, uh, there's uh, Bernie Sanders, and he was an independent for a long time until he decided he needed Democratic backing to possibly run for president. But anyway, um, just in the spirit of love and generosity to all, I'd like to suggest one key change that would allow Senator Sanders to compete against Donald Trump. And uh, this is just a simple, humble suggestion, and he may not like it. But I think if, you know, uh, if he would get a Donald Trump wig, anything, and for somebody like me to criticize anybody's hairdo is a bad thing. But, uh, that's not good, but, you know, it apparently worked last time, so maybe it will work this time. Okay. Recently, without trying to, I have heard a plethora of politicians from all sides of the spectrum use the phrase, the least of these and whether they know it or not, it's coming from Matthew 2540 as shorthand for certain, the least of these, according to Bill Weld, he's a Republican, he was the governor of Massachusetts and has made noises about running for the Republican nomination this time. Uh, Bernie Sanders wasn't independent for a long time, now he's a Democrat, and that's Camilla Harris, she's a senator from California who's a, um a Democrat who's running for the uh, nomination right now, I've heard all three of those and many others, and I'm not even trying to, to hear this, use the least of these as a shorthand for whatever favored social groups Bill Weld wants to make points with or that Camilla Harris wants to make points with uh, and to validate the need and really the moral obligation that the federal government has to provide free food, free housing, free water, free medical care for those favored groups. And, of course, that means taxpayers have to not only work hard out in the oil field like Dale to provide for his family, they've got to work hard to provide for all these other people. And you can't really uh, debate that because we're supposed to have this moral imperative to help all of the least of these, however, the politicians define that. Well, you know, you might say, well, he's talking about uh, just Democrats. no. I'm not going to tell you what particular legislation you should support. I'm talking about a principle of using Scripture out of context by people who would be offended if whoever did a benediction or an invocation at one of their campaign rallies prayed in Jesus' name. They'd be offended by that. They would not permit that. But then they're going to quote him and not ever give him credit for it, but hope that religious people that are so dumb that they they actually know Jesus said that, will fill a mandate to vote for whatever your favorite politician who's using that to promote their favorite social interest groups. And it's just very unfair and it's very unfortunate that a lot of evangelicals aren't biblically aware enough to realize they're kind of doing bait and switch there and they're kind of playing games with you. So, um, yeah, I'm going to just pick uh, Bill Weld, Republican, Bernie a representative Independent, who's now Democrat, and then Camilla Harris is just representative examples of this. Because I want to read a short excerpt from one of their speeches. I'm going to call that uh, the Speaker Candidate X, because I'm not really trying to bash Bernie directly or Camilla or Bill Well for that matter. But I just want to show you how they use this phrase to support and justify a bunch of stuff the phrase is not talking about in context, right? Um, and, and by the way, I left somebody out. We got Bill Weld there, we got Bernie, we got Camilla. Um, Joe Biden has cited this phrase a lot. of course, he will not remember doing it. That was a joke because you know he forgets stuff and what whatever okay so uh, yeah, I want to read I uh, thought I did uh, you know to me, if bill weld. Or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or Camilla Harris wanted to sell two of their three homes and take a vow of poverty and then do full-time prison ministry or full-time inner city homeless shelter ministry. It'd be one thing to cite Matthew 25. It'd still be out of context, but you can kind of get there from scripture, right? But they're not wanting to do that. They're not wanting to sell two of their three homes and take a vow of poverty and personally get their hands dirty. Uh, they're not even recruiting other people to do that. They're just saying the federal government has a moral obligation to support whatever social programs, new and better and bigger and more uh, inefficient social programs, whatever they're pushing this week. And it varies. But let me read a speech recently given by one of these three, and it could be, Probably most of the people running for president now, because that's kind of where we are. Um, and this phrase really, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, I'll give a reaction to speech. More important than the speech, and trust me, that trust me on this. Uh, they will. Uh, for some reason I can't get my thoughts organized this morning, but there are reasons, you know. Um, but. Uh, You can find them, trust me, watch uh, MSNBC or Fox News or anything in between, you're going to see them use that speech a lot. Cory Booker, etc. Many of these people. What I really wanted to read, more important than the speech, because it's easy to validate that, is a reaction to this kind of speech, a particular one, by somebody who has a blog post And I don't know who he is, but he claims to be an evangelical pastor. Evangelicals are those who believe the Christian faith is rooted in the core truth that Christ died for our sins and rose again. And because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. That's the core essence of Christianity. So he claims to be an evangelical pastor. And he heard one of these people, either Bill Weld or Bernie or Camilla uh Talking about the least of these means we've got a moral obligation to spend more federal money to help whatever social groups they think are the least of these this week. And here's what an evangelical pastor said about that. Because that kind of terminology really grabs a lot of well-intended but not very well-trained evangelicals. And he says this. As I listened to Candidate X, okay, trust me, it was either Bill or Bernie or Camilla, but I'm not going to tell you which one. It doesn't matter because they all kind of say the same thing. And many more say the same thing. As I listened to Candidate X, I realized she or he was good news for the poor. Because therefore, the least of these. Is she going to give up two or three of her homes and, and work with them? Is Bernie going to sell two of his three homes and work with them? No. He wants to run the government and have everybody else's taxpayer tax money goes go to inefficient, overbloated bloated. The only people who make money out of government programs are the people on the ground. It's the, the middle management and the people above them making lots of money to administer the paperwork. But anyway, as I listen to Candidate X, this is an evangelical pastor, I realized that she or he was good news for the poor, good news for the uncared for, good news for those in prison. And now we're talking about all felons are the least of these. That's, that's scary to me. And I remembered this evangelical pastor said, Jesus has said he had come to bring good news to the poor. So it's got to be the same thing, right? Apples and oranges. And lightning hit me in the heart. And if I wanted to be mean, I could say I only had wished it had. But no, I'm I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. Lightning hit my heart. Then he says, we are evangelical Christians. We're the ones that get it. We believe in the Bible. We believe in Jesus, and yet somehow we allow ourselves to abandon the least of these because we're not in support of whatever government programs anybody running for president is trying to push on us. Uh, We we believe in the Bible, believe in Jesus. We allow ourselves to abandon the least of these. We abandon the poor. I don't think I have. I've got poor people show up all the time, and I would spend hours talking to them and trying to give them enough to get down the road, and they hear the gospel, but they've heard it before. You know? Uh, the downtrodden and those in prison. And I remember Matthew 25, in, in this evangelical means 25, verse 40, Jesus said, every time we care for the poor, any and all poor under any and every circumstance? No. Or we care for those in prison, every convicted child molester, unrepentant, who do it again if you let them out, we are caring for and serving Jesus. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to beg to disagree with that. I know it sounds very, very uncaring and insensitive. So my point is, this phrase, the least of these, is used a lot today. But none of the politicians, now this evangelical pastor knew Jesus said it. But trust me, I've never heard any of these politicians uh, give credit to the source. They quote, we need to help the least of these, but they never say, as Jesus said. They don't even say that, because they might offend part of their base. And so we are never told who said it, although Christians are supposed to know. And in what context. And Christians are supposed to know that too, but they probably don't. Um, And it's just odd that the same political leaders who'd be offended if you prayed in Jesus' name at one of their rallies quote Jesus, not giving him credit, taking out of context. And my point this morning is this phrase, the least of these, doesn't mean what current politicians and the media elite want you to think it means. So let's look at the immediate context. The immediate context of verse 40 of chapter 25 is Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse which is like the book of Revelation uh, compressed into two chapters only. You know, this is Jesus beyond A to Z because we're kind of hitting passages we didn't hit with the A through Z system. But this time, this week, we're looking at uh, a passage, a verse, that's right in the middle of one of the letters. But we didn't really look at this part of the Olivet Discourse to any extent. We spent one whole week In the A through Z series, looking at V, vision of victory, just a few days before the crucifixion, Jesus talks about the end times, the fact he's going to win in the end. And we have introduction, body, and conclusion. And we're going to notice that uh, we're in the conclusion of this, where Jesus is talking about immediately after the second advent, certain circumstances where he commends those who help certain poor, certain prisoners, certain persecuted, that kind of thing. So let's use the book of Revelation as our basic prophecy baseline. We're living here in 2019 in the church age, waiting for Christ to come for the church. Then what Jesus calls the end of the age in Matthew 24 and 25, which is the seven-year tribulation period climax by a second advent will take place. I understand not all Christians take this literally. Some believe that the kingdom passages in the Old Testament are being fulfilled allegorically now in the church age. But I'm convinced that there's going to be a literal 1,000-year period, and we're going to see events at the very beginning of that in our passage here in Matthew 24 and 25, and then the eternal state. So I know Jenny likes my acronyms, and you know Jesus talks a lot about the end of the age in that all of that discourse, Matthew twenty four twenty five. So Dustin, that's our acronym for the end of the age, which is what we'd call the tribulation period climax by the second advent. And we're looking in Matthew twenty five, verse forty, about being sensitive to and meeting the needs of the least of these, not about anybody in prison or who's destitute over here? Look, we've got a general obligation as Christians to help other people. I get that, especially the poor, especially those that are poor beyond because of circumstances beyond their choosing and their effect. Um, Galatians six ten says that we should do good to everyone, including things like that, but especially those who are of the household of faith. Right? So priorities. So yeah, that's the context of this verse we're talking about is out here. Last time I checked, Bill Weld's over here somewhere, right? So just on the face of it, they're taking it out of context. You might say, what difference does it make? Jesus wants to tell people anyway. Well, it makes a whole lot of difference, actually. Then you might say, okay, that's nice, but you're thinking we're not going to go through the tribulation. so how does this relate to me? Well, we're here. Carson's right there, somewhere toward the end of the church age. And the, the rapture may not happen in our lifetimes, but it's imminent. It could happen at any moment, and that's what we're waiting for, the blessed um uh, hope of Christ coming back for his church, us being resurrected in place and going to to be with the Lord, but what happens after that is what the end of the age uh, seven year tribulation, second advent, kingdom, eternal state we 're talking about events in the prophetic future, not any time near right now, right so let 's just add that there 's our basic chart there 's that. So this verse where Jesus commends people for taking care of the least of these is commending believers who physically survived the tribulation are alive after the second advent and they're being commended for a general characteristic of Christians. The only people that were helping persecuted Christians during, persecuted by the Antichrist and his minions and others, the only people that were clothing People who had lost their jobs because of persecution or that were sick because of persecution or thrown in prison because of persecution, not because of child molestation or murder or rape. We're talking about Christians that are in prison during the tribulation. The only people helping them are other Christians. And that's a characteristic, general uh, character trait of those as opposed to everybody else in that period. Okay, So that's the immediate context. Matthew 24 and 25, talking about events right after the second advent. Let's talk generally, and I've I've listed a lot of verses there. We're not going to look at them all, but I want to look at just a a couple of the Old Testament ones that I just particularly love. Um, If you've got your Bible, go to Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah chapter 2, talking about the coming of Christ and setting up a kingdom on the earth when he will commend those believers that have survived the dreadful tribulation, and in part because part of the fruit, a big part of their fruit as Christians, was they supported persecuted Christians um, during the tribulation. Not all of us will be arrested. Not all of us will be martyred during the tribulation, but a lot will, and the only friends they're going to have will be fellow Christians. Okay, Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. In the last days, at the end of the age... The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. He's talking about nations, using mountain for nations, as the text will make clear. And all the nations, see that's a figurative reference to nations, will stream to it. Jesus is going to rule the world from Jerusalem. And many peoples will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his path. Is that kind of what's happening now? Do you see that a lot on the CBS Evening News or on Brett Bear, where people are just going hey let's go to Jerusalem and learn about Jesus you know is that kind of where billions of people are doing that is that where their heads are no not at all right for the law will go forth from Zion the word of the Lord will go from Jerusalem and he that is the Messiah Jesus will judge between the nations starting with this sheep goat judgment dealing with the survivors of the tribulation at the second advent you got to separate the unbelievers from the believers that's what we're talking about in Matthew 25 he will judge between the United Nations, not the U.N. or not the U.S. Congress or the President of the United States. He'll render decisions for many peoples, and during this earthly thousand-year reign, they will hammer their swords in the plowshares, their spears in the pruning hooks. Talking about politicians ripping stuff out of context, Dustin, they, they quote verses like that. We, need, we don't need more weapon systems to protect us from ISIS. You know, if we just are nice to ISIS and provide job opportunities for those poor people, they'll all go away and they'll be nice, right? We're not going to hammer our swords in the plowshares until after the second advent. Then we can disband the police department. Then we can disband the U.S. military. Until then, we need to be the biggest, baddest uh, hombre in the world because it's a fallen world out there. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn peace. Has that happened yet? No, it won't happen until after the second advent of Christ. Look at uh, Isaiah 9. The very first part of this refers to Christmas, and all the rest of it refers to the second advent of Christ. You know that by context. But I love it. You know, people read this at Christmas, but the only part that really deals with Christmas directly is the very first part of verse 6. For a child will be born to us. He's going to be... A human being, not an angel, an alien, a male, not a female, a Semite, a Jew of the family of David, right? We know that. And a son will be given to us. The Messiah is going to come and be born uh, through the uh, the normal pregnancy, although uh, virgin conception. And ultimately, the government of the whole world rests on his shoulders. And everybody's going to exalt him, as wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. There'll be no end of the increase of his government or of his peace, no more... Swords, you can turn them all in the farming implements, on the throne of David, over his kingdom, establish it, pull it with justice, righteousness, from then on forevermore. How's that going to happen? By UN resolution? No, by the second advent of Christ, which is an invasion, an, inv- an end of human history in God's terms, supernaturally, visibly, undeniably. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts means Lord of the armies, Lord of the angelic armies will accomplish this. One more. Look at Zechariah toward the very back of the Old Testament. Not Zephaniah with a P. That little book. You're looking at a 14 chapter book just before Malachi. Look at Zechariah 14. Verse 3 through 4. Then we'll jump to verse 9. Talking about Jerusalem be surrounded by the bad guys in connection with the battle of Armageddon. But then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle, and in on that day the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Have you been to, is the Mount of Olives a real place? We've been there, right? You've been there, right? And we're talking about the Lord Jesus' second advent, and it goes on from there. Drop down to verse nine. And in the aftermath of him coming to the Mount of Olives and establishing this government, the Lord, Jesus Christ, will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one. His name, the only one. And he starts that with the sheep and goat judgment. That's talked about in Matthew twenty-five forty, 40, and that surrounding context. So let's reread verses 31 through 40. Of Matthew 25, based on all this good context we got now, Joe, in our heads. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory at the second advent of Christ, He'll sit on His throne, and He'll start administering His kingdom. First things first, human beings and human bodies who have survived the tribulation will be in one of two categories, believers or unbelievers. He's going to separate them. He'll sit on His glorious throne, all the nations be gather before Him. He'll separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The King will say to those on his right, the believers come, you are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry he wasn't literally hungry, but his people who had been persecuted during the tribulation had to be driven under the above ground economy there everybody's probably hungry. you gave me something to drink, I was thirsty you gave me something uh, gave me something to eat I was thirsty gave me something to drink I was a stranger homeless not because I was an addict and unwilling to work but because uh, they took away all my possessions the bad guys I was a stranger you invited me in naked you clothed me I was sick and you visited me I was in prison this is not your average pol- population of current felons this these are specific Christian uh, persecuted folks during the tribulation who've now um, received the benefits of uh, hospitality and help from other Christians are the only friends they've got. I was in prison. You came to me. And then they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? We don't remember serving you. We served a lot of our brethren, but we didn't serve you. When did we feed you? When did we clothe you? When did we do these things? When you were sick in prison? When did we come to you? Uh, and the king will answer, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, one of these people who are believers in me and they faced the price of intense persecution, even the least of them. Looked down as a marginalized, horrible group that had to be stamped out. You did it to me. So you see the context there, right? we're talking about. Am I saying we shouldn't help Salvation Army? I send money to Salvation Army. Probably not enough. They used to let us ring bells with Salvation Army in front of Walmart. But that got changed. I think the ministers wouldn't show up. We're not very dependable. We forget things, you know. So They did that for years, but now they've got other people doing it. But here's the thing. In Matthew 25, 31 through 40, the Lord's talking to sheep. Who are the sheep? They're believers who physically survived in their human bodies, the tribulation. They enter the kingdom after the second advent in their physical bodies. And he contrasts them with unbelievers, the goats, who also, it would be a small percentage of the total population of the world, but there will be some people that will survive the rigors of the seven-year tribulation physically, and you have believers and unbelievers, sheep and goats, right? And he contrasts or identifies them by citing one representative characteristic of the sheep, one of the key fruits of the believer's faith during that period, that is, active concern for the least of these Christ brethren, fellow Christians who, due to persecution, specifically directed against them for their faith, for the crime of being a Christian, were deprived of food, water, clothing, medical care, and freedom during the tribulation. So this is not a generic description, the least of these, of all marginalized people groups, legitimate or illegitimate, since 33 AD when Jesus taught this. And it's not describing the general prison population of convicted convicted felons in 2019 this idea that we've got to have new prison programs because Jesus said the least of these. He's not talking about the prisons, uh, the general prison population, I should say. So when Christians in Jesus' day, when he spoke these words, today and immediately before the tribulation, should have a sincere concern for the poor, especially those who are Christians, uh, the least of these in Matthew 25 is not talking about those types of people just generally. Certainly not meditating or mandating that believers must robotically support any politician or any government program that claims to try to help the poor. I'm not going to tell you what programs to support. I'm not even going to tell you to vote for it. You decide that, but if you think citing the least of these means you've got to vote for House Bill twenty seven eleven this week. That's not what he's talking about there. You're going to have to look at that bill on its merits, and it may be worth supporting, it may not be, but it has nothing to do with Jesus talking about in Matthew 25, right? Um, And, yeah, it's important we actually kind of figure out we can't solve all these problems by spending money. Uh, We spent like $50 trillion on poverty programs since the early 1960s, and the problem hasn't gotten better, it's gotten worse. But a lot of middle management and government bureaucrats have made a lot of money and they live in Chevy Chase and they've got three houses. So nobody ever seems to notice the so money does very small percentage of all that money ever gets to actually help somebody. FEMA's great when the hurricane comes through, but the nail benders from the Baptist Church get down there the day of the hurricane and they're building houses for people. It takes you like three months to wait to be able to fill out the forms for FEMA. And then maybe a year later, you might get some help. You can ask Karen and my sisters about stuff like that. It takes forever. Well-intended, but it's just impossible for that big bureaucracy to work very well. And it just never does. Instead of thinking, well, we've got to get more of that and pay for more of that when, when it doesn't work, is just crazy, and Jesus is not mandating that. You may you may decide you want want more of that, and that's your perfect choice. But don't tell me Jesus is talking about that in Matthew 25 because he has no idea. He's not, he knows everything, but he's not talking about that. And we got another little problem. You know, we're 22 trillion dollars in debt right now. And nobody's saying, look, that's not sustainable. We're going to have to cut back on a little something somewhere as opposed to just printing money. We well, just can print money. You know, but the more money you get, the less it's worth in inflation, hyperinflation, destruction of a culture. So same song, second verse, showing active concern for the least of these in poverty today, or in prison today is not what Jesus is talking about, although I think we ought to have concern for people in legitimate dire straits. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about Christians who prayed for and helped other Christian believers who had been impoverished or imprisoned because of their faith. Now go to 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, the letter toward the back of the New Testament. And for those of us who know what evangelical... Christianity is, and we know there are no such thing as Methodist suicide bombers or Presbyterian suicide bombers or Bible church suicide bombers. We know we may disagree with a lot of the nuts craziness out there in the world, but we're not a danger violently to anybody at all. But we forget how radical daring to believe in Jesus alone for salvation is to the world And they want you to believe anything about Jesus except he's the exclusive issue of eternal life. You can believe anything, good, bad, or indifferent, they don't care. They'll even quote him but not give him credit for it when they try to get your money. But 1 John 5, 1 through 5, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the Savior, he's the issue of eternal life because he died for your sins and rose again. The gospel is the good news that all of us have sinned and the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is through Jesus Christ because Christ died for Our sins, we don't have to die in our sins, but he's not dead anymore, right? A dead savior can't get you from Oklahoma Oklahoma to heaven, but the resurrected one's the only one who can, right? So whoever believes that, believes in Christ for salvation, is born of God, and that's big. That's everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, perfect righteous standing, all that wonderful stuff. And whoever loves the Father just intuitively loves other people in the family, And that's expressed by the sheep who are the only ones supporting and trying to help the Christians that are under intense persecution and tribulation. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. We're going to do the right thing the right way. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And it's not grim resignation like we're doing God a favor. We want to do the right thing now. We're not saved by doing the right thing. We're saved so we can do the right thing for the right reasons. Verse 4. And whatever is born of God overcomes the world because the world wants you to believe anything about Jesus except he's the exclusive issue and the exclusive issue of eternal life. Believe anything, good, bad, or different. And a lot of people, they say a lot of good things. They even quote Jesus, but they won't tell you it's quoting Jesus because they might hurt somebody's feelings. Whatever's born of God overcomes the world because the world wants you to believe anything but that. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. Our faith that Jesus is Christ, who's the only one who overcomes the world? But the one who believes Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God who's dared to trust him and him alone for salvation. So that's the gospel. That's what the world needs. That's the one thing the world doesn't want to hear. It's open to all kinds of other things. I mean, hugging trees, worshiping the planet. I mean, Earth Day instead of Easter? you kidding me? I'm a Boy Scout. I was first class Boy Scout. I'm all about conserving our natural resources. But worshiping the planet? Doesn't Scripture warn us about worshiping the creation instead of the creator? That's that's the kind of stuff these people are promoting, and nobody seems to notice, including evangelical pastors that write blog posts that cause my blood pressure to go way up. You know, I recently had a—I bragged about this to a lot of people— I had a uh, life insurance uh, physical right over there in my office a few weeks ago, and my numbers were all great except for this one measurement that shows potential cancer, and it says, really, you should have a zero on that, but it's okay to have from one to four, and I'm 38 so that was a little bit concerning. But I think that's my melanoma kind of residue cropping up there. I could be wrong, but we'll see. All right, boom, forget about that. Yeah. So let me say, too, go back to Matthew 25. When the Lord's commending these good, uh, faithful, fruitful tribulation believers that had clothed the naked Christian uh, persecuted uh, folks and had visited them and had helped them and had supported them and, and you know were the only friends they had. Uh, he's not affirming salvation by works. There, some people who want to preach a social gospel. Uh, I think we as Christians realize that God's interested in one soul at a time and changes culture not from the top down but from the down up, from the bottom up, you might say. But people who are tend to be liberal in the theology. Preach a social gospel and the gospel is to help poor people and allow felons to vote and make sure, you know, that we, uh, have the exact percentage of every ethnic group represented in the prisons. I thought we were supposed to have people that commit crimes and are, use their Miranda rights and their uh, free uh, legal uh, uh, stuff and the First Amendment, all these good things, that once they're found guilty of a crime, you know, you've murdered and burnt a little girl, you go to prison whether you're white, black, Hispanic, Japanese, Chinese, or uncarian We don't care. But now we got to look at the percentages. Oh my goodness, you know, a certain ethnic group is 14% and 29% of them make up the uh, population. They also commit about 55% of the crimes. I mean, nobody says these things anymore. And you consider to be dangerous. Do I seem dangerous to you? Um, I guess I'm kind of dangerous. but uh, I do know uh, judo, karate, and several other Japanese words. Just don't mess with me, okay? But uh, we're not teaching salvation by works here, but he's describing the sheep by one characteristic uh that Christians tend to have that we love our brethren and they're the only ones helping fellow Christians during the tribulation for sure okay because they've been vilified marginalized so i'll say this and then we'll take this to heart uh, to my knowledge none of the politicians today talk about the us government's moral obligation meaning taxpayers moral obligation to provide a huge number of uh, free uh, social services for the least of these um, none of these politicians ever put our Lord's statement about caring for the least of these in context they don't mention he said it and to the extent they maybe hope you do they don't say oh by the way this is something Jesus said right after he will invade the earth wipe out all unbelievers and establish his sovereignty on the earth I mean once they realize he's saying it in that context they're going to have to stop saying it right because you don't actually believe that stuff do you? Well, yeah, we actually do. You know, which is why we won't vote for most of these people, I hope. But I'm not going to tell you how to vote. Really. On the other hand, maybe you can call me. I'll tell you. I'm not going to tell you. I'll, I'll I'll answer your questions though. So take this to heart. Always remember and apply the three keys to legitimate Bible study, which are what? Yeah, those are the three keys, okay? Everybody from William Weld to Bernie Sanders to Camilla Harris is ripping the least of these way out of context, okay? So that's, that's a problem right there. Attempting to interpret and reply biblical statements apart from their individual context is often a pretext for all kinds of theological monkey business. So be careful about that. And even a lot of good evangelicals, not talking about this issue, may get the right answer for the wrong reason because you just rip a verse out of context and you read something the Bible teaches somewhere else into it. And so what you're saying is right, but that's eventually going to catch up with you once you just start ripping verses out of context and reading what you think the Bible says into every other verse. It just doesn't work that well. So one thing I've tried to do is always teach in context. Now you might think, well, okay, Brad, you know, this is fine. If we were living in the tribulation or just at the second advent, this would be a really good verse because you're saying this verse you've just spent the whole time on is talking to those people. Wrong Bible breath. Actually, this does relate to you because as I say in your handout, you don't have to wait till the end of the tribulation and right for the second advent and you don't have to be in North Korea to face this. This was last week, not in North Korea but in the United States of America, okay. And just so you won't think I'm making it up, I'm going to read some of it. Okay, kill them all. Iowa professor resigns after his comments about evangelicals were revealed. This is somebody who's being paid to teach uh, at uh, a uh, institution of higher learning that all evangelicals should be killed. Isn't that nice? A professor has resigned from his position over social media posts where he expressed support for the extreme left and Antifa, which is anti-fascist. That's what it means, but they use fascist tactics to try to kill Christians, I guess. That's what they want to do. Uh, Express his hatred for evangelical Christians, those who actually take the cross seriously, who trust Christ alone for salvation, all colors, countries, and cultures. That's not just a white thing. Jeff Klingsman, an adjunct English professor, now, I've been an adjunct professor at Cameron now since 2004, and for the first two years I was teaching there, I thought they were calling me a junk professor, which kind of hurt my feelings, you know, but I realized adjunct means part-time, and so I said, okay, I can do that. So beware of adjunct professors, right? Uh, at Kirkwood Community College in Cedar Rapids, Michigan, had posted on a Facebook page named Iowa Antifa, and he commented on that Facebook page, yeah, I know who I'd who I know who I'd clock with a bat in response to a tweet from President Trump about Antifa or Antifa, every time I say this pronounce it differently. Uh he said uh Antifa, the president in a tweet said uh, Antifa are radical left whack jobs who go around hitting people with, over the heads with baseball bats. So that was his description of them. And so this professor says, I know who I'd like to clock with a baseball bat. Which is a veiled threat against the United, President of the United States, which used to be kind of a felony, but maybe not anymore. He also, that's, that's him. That's him talking about President Trump, not us. He also wrote in that same Facebook post, he wanted to stop evangelical Christian and posted a poem that said, kill them all and bury them deep in the ground. Now, would I ever say from the pulpit or from the lectern at Cameron, uh, we should kill, just put in your, whatever group you want, you know, uh, left-handed bowlers that limp. Kill them all and bury them in the ground. Does that sound like something any legitimate Christian would say under any circumstances? I mean, put something more controversial than left-handed bowlers with limps, you know, but there aren't that many around, you know. Plus, I don't really like those people anyway, I'm just telling you. I, no, I don't care about left-handed bowlers. I don't like bowlers. No, I, that's just that's just me. Um, I'm trying to be funny there, which is bad. Stop evangelicals, kill them all, bury them deep in the ground. Kling's been explained why he shared the poem. It's not pretty. Uh, you're right there, Prof. Good job. And I'm not proud. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you kidding? But seeing what evangelical Christians are doing in this country, you know, all those suicide bombers we've got, all, you know, horrible things we do, and his people fills me with rage and a desire to exact revenge. Is that guy rational? Is he crazy? Is he dangerous? I would say he's both crazy and dangerous. This is not North Korea. This is Mich- Cedar Rapids, Michigan. Now, Joe, it gets worse because they, they, they pushed him to Iowa. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Why did I say Michigan? Thank you for correcting me on that. Uh, I listened to that later and I was just like, I'm so, I hate saying that. Thank you for correcting me. I'm so happy with that. But anyway, I gotta finish this thing. Watch this. That's pretty bad. Uh and then when you hear, well, the administration encouraged him to resign, you say, Well, that's what they should do. It's it's no. You gotta read behind uh the the, 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 the large print. Watch this. Kirkwood Community College President Lori Sundberg, I don't know her, I'm sure she's a very sweet person, uh um, maybe not, uh said that news about Klingsman's opinion had drawn considerable attention from many inside and outside of the Kirkwood community, just as we embark on a new school year. With campus safety in mind, she said, because all these horrible evangelical you know, suicide bombers might show up, uh, the college spoke with Klingsman and accepted his resignation. Now, look what she says, though. It's kind of like, Brad, you're the greatest thing ever, but... Just go ahead and say the butt part because, I mean, you don't think I'm the best thing ever. Whatever, you know, when you say but, B-U-T. In today's climate, the president, Sundberg, said, some may want to use this decision to support broader arguments about free speech on college campuses. That's why I want to be very clear with you about the reasoning behind this decision to accept his resignation after he said he should, wants to kill all evangelical Christians. The national attention from that tweet is potentially disruptive to our mission, she said, the president, and our decision to remove Mr. Klingsman, he doesn't even have his doctorate, uh, <laughs> from the classroom, has nothing to do with the substance of his views or his right to express them. So we're fine with him wanting to kill all the evangelical Christians. It's just it's brought some bad publicity, and we can't handle that because that might hurt fundraising. That's the bottom line on that. So anyway, what should our reaction to all this be? All this ugliness? Well, I think Jesus tells us, he says, pray for those who persecute you. That's number one. And then Paul says, therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of the craziness of the now, but looking forward to the eternal future, be steadfast. Don't give up the ship. You know, don't give up the faith. Keep the faith. Be immovable in the basics. Keep loving the Lord, loving your family, loving your church, loving your community, loving other people, even if they don't like you. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil Is not in vain in the Lord. I'm going to close with prayer. And after I pray, please sit tight because I need to make an announcement. Uh, Let's pray. Father, forgive us for allowing ourselves to be influenced by those liberal, moderate, conservative politicians or preachers or anybody who rip the word out of context and, and break it into little pieces that teach things the Word doesn't actually teach at all. Uh, help us to bring no agenda to your Word when we study it individually or study it, sit under it here at church, but that we might know and do your will best on what you say to us in context. And help us to wait with expectation, knowing that the kingdom is going to come in fullness. Uh, make us disciplined disciples, not just religious consumers, uh, givers, not just takers, Contributors, not just critics, of the world around us, and give us wisdom as we attempt, with your help and your power, uh, to live and to share your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.